Career Disruptors is the podcast for senior managers who are not afraid to challenge the status quo, who challenge assumptions and who push the boundaries and love shattering conventional wisdom. I'm coach Caroline DeKimper, empowering professionals to build a personal brand that gives them the confidence they need to go after the career they want and deserve. Thanks so much for tuning in today. And today on the show, we have Nikki Chaplin. So Nikki is a senior marketing and communication manager and an expert in client acquisition, segmentation and retention in financial services. So today, Nikki is going to give us invaluable insights on the importance of financial literacy for women. Welcome to the show, Nikki. Thank you very much, Caroline. Perfect. So before we dive in, I would love to find out what got you so interested in this topic? What's your story around it? Well, I've come from a very large family and I've always been fascinated by our different reactions to the same situations. Um, And by a big family, I'm one of nine kids um, and we all have very different ways of reacting to situations. And more recently, it's been our very different approaches to our finances and our different levels of financial literacy. We were all brought up by the same parents. We, by and large, had the same education. But it's it's amazing to me that I understand much more about finance than say you know one of my sisters and I just look at her and just think how can you not know that and so that's that's one of the the differences that I've been fascinated by and also as you said in your introduction I've worked in financial services for about 18 years and I've seen a lot of women and especially older women because of the companies that I've worked in who Mm. are at sea when their partners die or their relationships break up and they have to start managing their finances on their own. And I've also got friends and family who've got very little practical knowledge around finance and their financial help. And it's not because they're not intelligent, but they are. But it's because for them, it seems like an impenetrable and foreign language. Now, finance uses a lot of jargon. It's an easy shorthand for us. But when you're not immersed in that every day, it can be really scary when speaking about it for the first time. But it doesn't need to be like this. Um, Understanding your financial situation and your financial health and concepts around that, they're not hard to understand once you understand a little bit of the language or you get the confidence up to talk to, to say to someone, I don't understand what that means. Can you tell me? And um, a good rule of thumb when I'm writing or speaking um, for people who don't have a lot of experience or haven't worked in the industry as I am, I pitch it to my 80-something-year-old mother. She won't let me say how old she is (laughs) and, and kind of pitch it to her and also I love it when I'm talking to someone and people say, um, I'm really sorry, Nikki, can you explain that again? Hmm. I don't understand what you mean because it makes me think and translate things into plain English for them. And it's lovely for them to go, oh, 
Oh, that's not hard. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's kind of that's where my interest is. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because I am so guilty of that of not really uh, being too concerned about my finances, mm. and so and I outsource it all the time to my husband. It's like, oh, you take care of that. So I don't take ownership of what's happening on that part and it's so important because you want to create a balance in your life to actually understand what's got coming in and what's going out and what investments you need to make but because otherwise you can't expect anything to grow if you don't take that time now to make the right choices within your financial situation exactly and also women live longer than men and there is a a cohort of women who are in their 70s who are now having um, custodianship of the family's wealth because their husbands have died and suddenly they're thinking, oh my Lord, what, what do I actually do? And they don't have confidence within themselves to speak to their advisors um, and say, look, I don't understand this. Can you explain it to me, please? I worked for a company that specialised in bonds um, and bonds are um, a very good way for, you know, investing for regular income, which people who have retired or on fixed incomes or part of their superannuation, we had a lot of older people in. And every week women would come in and they would be accompanied by their children, but they would suddenly have to make those decisions. So I think the earlier that you are comfortable around these concepts, the more comfortable that you will get. And when you're bereaved, there are so many other things that you you are dealing with and have to um, deal with on a daily basis that suddenly working out finances and, you know, you need to make a decision if an investment's maturing, it's one extra burden that if you're familiar with it, it makes it a lot easier for you. Yeah. Exactly. Now, when we're talking about finances, uh, because it's such a, a big area, um, mm-hmm. can you just break it up in, in, in chunks so people understand what it really all um, incorporates? Um, yeah, I think the three main things that um, women need to get their head around is sort of like learning about financial concepts things like how a mortgage works, um, how the different types of mortgage works, you know, what you're responsible for, what your lender is responsible for, and then things about the long-term effect of the difference between, say, a 10% deposit for your house and a 20% deposit and how over the life of a 25-year loan that will add up to tens of thousands of extra interest that you need to pay on that you know and also things about how investments work the different types of investments that you have the difference between a 
term deposit versus a corporate bond, a managed fund versus a tracker fund. Um, and now I've just said some jargon there that people may go, <laughs> oh, what is that? Holy moly. Um, I yeah. You lost me. Fair <laughs> and and that's and I'm glad that you did say um, you know, you've lost me there because very simply a a fund that you would invest in, a lot of investors would say put in $10,000, all of that money gets pulled and then your investment manager invests mm-hmm. all of that pooled money to be able to buy a lot more of stocks and shares and investments in, in different various types of bonds. Yeah. Now, a managed fund is where you have a fund manager who every day manages the investments, looks at what's coming up, what's maturing, what they want to buy, what they want to sell, whereas um, a tracker fund buys, for example, um, the ASX 200, they will buy the same percentage of all of the companies in the ASX 200 and you don't have an active manager in it. They also tend to be cheaper on an ongoing basis um, and and depending on that you know over a period of 10 years the tracker funds have tended to um, perform better than some managed funds yeah that makes sense and it's it's knowing first of all what is the jargon to actually say okay what's the definition and how does that impact me and what can I, what choices can I now make that's going to give me whatever outcome that I, that I want, de- definitely. And one really important thing is to understand how comfortable you are with the risk of the investment because every investment that you make carries risk yeah. um, and it's generally the higher the return, the more risky it is. So you've got to work out, and it's different for everyone, you've got to work out how much money you're willing to lose and how much risk you're willing to take and be really firm on that when you make those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, meeting up with a financial planner ages ago and they did a, a profile basically on how, how um, I take risk. Yes. <laughs> and the outcome was that I was very conservative. <laughs> yeah. So, and and yeah. That, that is fine. And that's, it's a, understanding that and understanding the different types of investments and what you need to feel safe and comfortable within your life, that is a really big part of it. Um, And it's one that tends to get glossed over a little bit. Um, And, yeah, and also understanding what you're investing in and understanding the language that's yours used puts you in a much better position when you are dealing with financial advisors Um, because if you say, look, it it gives you, say, I understand, you know, 20% of what you've said. Can you explain 
the next 30% and that other 50%, let's not go there today. And it's good. And also a really good financial advisor, and I have said this all throughout my career and, and looked some of my colleagues in the eye and said, from a treating customers fairly point of view, if they don't understand what you're suggesting that they're investing in, should we be selling it to them? Yeah. So if you don't understand it and you can't get a good explanation from your financial advisor and you don't think that you're ever going to get a good explanation from it, don't invest in it no. and find someone else to deal with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's not uh, at this stage, it's not about oh, I trust you or I don't trust you. It's about you really getting control over where your money is going and being yes. accountable also because it's yes. easy to say like, oh, I made this investment, it's went to, to shit and it's not my fault, it's my, my planner's fault. No, the accountability is basically, it's, it's, it's with you that you understand the, the, the investments that, that you basically make. And it's also, it's not your advisor's money, mm. it's yours. Yes. And we say, I'm, I'm, we're using the term advisors, but there are lots of people that I know who, are, um, who do it themselves. They, they don't have an advisor. They're what in the industry we call self-directed, uh, which means that they, they genuinely take an interest in their investments and they like it and they do it as a hobby and they are very, very knowledgeable and they will go to providers that don't offer personalized advice um, which means that that is advice that takes into account all of your um, all of your situations they offer general advice and they'll help you execute things but you are essentially making the decisions Um, so for example my father was very self-directed he he did this as a hobby he liked it he was actually very very good at it Um, and so there there are two ways of doing it but um yeah and there there are also i know some people who you know i've met people in my life who um are very happy to invest in in shares and funds themselves because they understand that but they're wanting to get into more exotic stuff or stuff that they've never done before. So they go to an advisor for that part. So you can actually mix and match. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be a lot like you have to know already a lot about um, financial advice to actually self-direct. So that would be more, uh, you need to be more comfortable making those decisions. You, you need, yes, yeah. you do need to be more comfortable making those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people just have a knack and genuinely like it. <laughs> exactly. Um, like they're passionate some about people, it. Yeah, they're passionate about it. Like, for example, I'm passionate about sewing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love it and I pick it up really easily. But um, I know other people, like some of my friends are just amazed with the clothes that I make myself and they look at it and go, 
how could you do that? And my response is, I've been doing it for 40 years. If I wasn't good by it now, by now, um, I don't think I would have stuck at it. Yeah. And this, this comes back to one of, one of the things is that we need to understand our finances. We don't need to be experts because there are experts out there who can help us but we need to understand what we're asking what we're investing in what the answers are and we need to do it from an early age I think this should be taught in high school if not earlier and I'm not talking about you know concepts about this is how you save this is very much no these are this is how you run a bank account. This is how you run an investment. This is how a mortgage works. This is how a credit card works. Yeah. This is how, um, you know, how debt works. That yeah. you need to be taught at, uh, at an earlier age. So suddenly when you're, you know, first moving out of home and you have your first job and your first real big pay packet, you suddenly don't all blow it and you're eating baked beans for, you know, 21 (laughs) days out of the month. Um, This is so true, Nikki, because like you are just like, I have a light bulb moment that I, that I think of is like, because the only blueprint, the financial blueprint that you that you get, is not from school or it's not uh, um, uh, uh, a proven uh, framework. No, it's from your family often. So yes. you get that. So I know certain things about my fi- finances that I carry on from my parents, how they used to, to look at money and finances and you just carry on the tradition and this is really where it goes wrong and to your point that that this should be something that we should learn in at school to get an, an, an a fair fair understanding what all of that means without having the the blueprint of your parents basically yes and i also think that Families should talk about money before the crunch time comes, say before, you know, before someone dies and you're looking at the will and you're going, oh, that doesn't seem fair. Or you're, um, or I, in the, the job that I've, I've just left, I was um, very lucky to attend an event where a PwC partner was talking about family succession planning. Um, And the thing that stood out for me that should apply to all families, irrespective of their financial um, position, is that in his experience, it was the families that talked about money openly had much more successful relationships within the family and especially when dealing with the transition of wealth from one generation to the next. Mm. And he did a show of hands of people in the room who, you know, who were the families that talked about money. And I put up my hand and he just kind of looked at me as if to say, you're probably only 10% of the room that it was actually putting up the hand. Now, the reason that we talked about money in my family is because there were some shocks after a bereavement that caused ramifications in the family, that if we'd been able to talk about it beforehand, it wouldn't have been such a shock. 
So, um, yeah, and I say, I say to all of my friends now, I don't have children myself, but I say to my, my best friends, talk about what's going in your will with your kids, start talking about money now, then there are no shocks when you're not around to explain what you were doing and what you were thinking about um, and get them used to these concepts now because when, irrespective of what age you are, when a parent dies, um, it's extraordinary. The, yeah. I, I didn't realise that I would feel so tired um, that was one of the real shocks. And then suddenly dealing with all of this as well. Um, and, and because of the industry that I worked in, knowing more about it and, um, and, you know, people in the family leaning on me more, if we talked about it, it, it would have been easy for all of us. Yeah. And when you're grieving, you've got other stuff that you want to deal with. Yeah, Not exactly. money. Exactly. So uh, you talked about will as one of the, the things that we should be talking about with our family. What are the other things? Because we, you say, like, we need to talk about money. So let's break that down a little bit. What, what yeah. is it that we need to talk about? So we need to talk about our will, but what else is involved that uh, we should be open with, about? Oh, look, um, we should be open about um, savings, yeah. how much money is coming in our different ways of managing money. Um, there is this, um, when, when I'm, I'm talking with my friends and things like that, there is this great thing that I like to throw in the conversation of an STD and they just look at me and go, what? And I'd say, sexually transmitted debt, people, sexually transmitted debt. <laughs> and, that, and that is when you're in a relationship and, for example, you know, one partner doesn't have a very good credit rating, so the other will apply for a loan on their behalf and then the relationship breaks down and the person who should be paying off the loan isn't. So then suddenly you get that debt or you have um, a joint a joint loan, for example, like a mortgage, the relationship breaks up, you're still liable for all of that even though it's, a, you know, a joint mortgage. Just because the relationship has broken up doesn't mean you, you carry that debt into you know, your singlehood and your next relationship. And also people have different views around money, um, different views around how they manage it, what level of debt they're comfortable with, what level of savings they're comfortable with. You need to talk about that. You don't need to go into absolutely every detail, but you need to have an understanding that when you, you know, you or in a relationship with someone, they're not going to think of it the same way. No. And it can be a flashpoint in the relationship. Yeah. Well, I have a question, Nikki. Yes. Like, why do you think that people are so... Not, let, let me rephrase it. Why do you think people avoid talking about money? Why is it such a, a, a topic that people just, like, don't talk about? Um... I think sometimes they think that it's vulgar. Mm -hmm. um, oh, no, we don't talk about money, dear. Mm -hmm. um, and that's often people who have money. Um, and sometimes the people who don't have money are living 
with the absence of money all the time and they're thinking about it all the time that they just want a break from it. Um, But I think people need to be, and, and also it's scary. You know, there have been times in my life when I've been scared to open a credit card statement or crossed my fingers when I've swiped my card when I'm buying groceries saying, oh, please let there be enough money in it. Yeah. And it's scary to talk about it, and, um, but it, it kind of shouldn't be. And also there are people out there who are, bores about money about their investments about their investment properties Mm. and um and you're just like oh give it a rest love can't you just talk about (laughs) something else yeah so there, there is a middle ground between sticking your head in the sand and then only ever being you know that that one trick pony that only ever talks about that yeah and um i'm not saying that every every conversation you you should have it but around the the big times you you should and involve your family if you have children around it and you know because i grew up in in a large family and Mum worked and dad worked, but they weren't, you know, hugely paying jobs. And But we always knew, I mean, we never went without, but we didn't have the extravagances. But we just kind of knew that there wasn't much money around, so we didn't really ask for stuff. Yeah. Um, and, like, I, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, so I said my age. Um, <laughs> but I think a lot of people now... Um, I'm finding that there is so much pressure, particularly on younger people to, you know, wear the right clothes, be at the right places, be seen, you know, to be going on holidays without them understanding that if you want to do all of that, you either need to earn a hell of a lot or you will go into debt and that debt will follow you and the ramifications are that you may pay more for a mortgage, you may pay more for a personal loan or you may not be able to have those things. Yeah, um, yeah, so, yeah. so there's that. And, you know, look, in my 20s and 30s, that's how I lived my life. Yeah. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, I had... And I worked out what my relationship with money to was very late well I think very late Mm. um and it would have helped me in my 20s and 30s not to lie awake at night and just think oh my god what have I done and to become more aware and that's basically actually the the message like a lot of uh people need to just be and, and specifically particularly women need to be more aware of their finances and actually not shy away from it and like you no. said not being an ostrich and putting your head in the sand um another question that i had is like did you see a difference between um england and australia in terms of how comfortable people are talking about finances and money money um or not particular not particularly. Well, actually, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, in the UK, people are much more comfortable talking about saying, oh, I've got this 
ISA, which is an, an individual, you know, an investment savings account, um, because most of the population or, or most of my cohort had them. They were tax efficient savings. You could put um, up to a certain amount of cash or investments in them. But the government also talked about them. The government talked about these, these investment accounts that were tax effective. So it was just part of the normal, talking about the normal, there were ads on the TV all the time for them. What I'm finding much more in Australia that it is much more about, um, you know, payday lending, much more about mortgages, um, you know, how you invest in things. And it's, it, it's much more around the, the fairy tale of um, getting rich and investing rather than, you know, having small pots of money that are very tax effective. Yeah. I also, um, Australia has this absolute love affair with shares and property at the expense of other type of financial investments, like for example, bonds, which can give very, very good returns um, and are very good for a lot of the population. They just yeah. don't know about them. And um, Australia are, you know, property bores. Yeah. I say that I am Australian. <laughs> um, I've recently bought my first ever property that I live in. Um, you know, some people would say very late, but it's where I live. It's not where I invest in. And to me, it's much more than an investment. Yeah. It's where I live and it's where I feel safe. Mm. Um, and I've got other investments. Mm. Um, yeah. And I just, I think, I, look, we're very good at talking about superannuation um, because we all have to contribute to it or our employers have to contribute to it, but we're not actually really good at saying to people, actually, yeah, there are the minimum contributions that your employer has to give, but you should also be paying whatever you can into superannuation and right from your first job and getting the right superannuation fund that's right for you, um, that's not that isn't too risky for what you want to do. What, what or, do you mean? You don't use the default one? <laughs> you don't have to use the default one. <laughs> That's what I always did. And, oh, just go with the default one that they recommend. <laughs> and that's fine. For some people, the default one is yeah. good. Um, and for others, it isn't. I have to go in, um, my superannuation has to go into a special one for another couple of years because I transferred a lot of um, my pension funds. They call it a, a pension in the UK, but it's a superannuation fund over here. So I had to go into a special one, but that's rolling over in about 18 months. And I'm looking really hard at where my money is at the moment and seeing whether I can get a better deal by transferring it to somewhere else yes um things you never think about basically no doing. you don't and one of the other things is you know if you have your mortgage your personal loan your savings account your credit card with the one provider it might be easy for you but 
you're probably not getting the best deal on all of those. Yeah. So shop around and don't be, don't be afraid to ring them up and say, well, look, I can get a better deal from here. What can you do to match me? Um, and sometimes they'll say, well, we can't match that. And you'll just go, okay, that's fine. Let's move. Um, yeah, exactly. And the first time that you do it, it's really hard. And you're shaking. The first time I did it, it was, you know, shaking and I work in the industry. But, um, you know, I got a better deal and it's, it's fine. And I use, you know, various providers for different things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I know we already spoke through our conversation uh, about mistakes you see people make, but just mm. to summarize them, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see going on? If you have to summarize everything uh, in, in a couple of words, basically. I think um, not looking after your finances. It's, it's not the sexy thing to do. It may seem impenetrable. Um, but if you don't do that, you, you're not taking an interest in your lives. I mean, we're told that we should exercise and eat well and have healthy foods and cut down on alcohol and sugar and don't smoke. I think we should, you know, understanding finance and understanding your, your financial situation should be also one of the things that we just do to live a happy and rounded life. So, you know, shop around for the best deals that you can. And if you are in debt, I know that I've been talking a lot about superannuation and investments, but for a lot of people who may be uh, listening, that's, that's not really an option because they are in debt. And take a really long look hard of how you actually got there, why you, why you got there, and take concrete steps to get out of debt um, there are some, you know, we've got concepts of good debt. A mortgage is what people in the industry consider good debt. Mm -hmm. You know, $20,000 on a credit card at 17% is not good debt. Yeah. So work out how you actually got there and take concrete steps mm -hmm. to get out, out of that. Mm -hmm. um, and just just be more really be more aware of what you're being sold and what actually you're comfortable with and the risks that you're comfortable with yeah. and try and get some fluency in those financial concepts. Yeah. And once you understand a little bit, it becomes a hell of a lot easier and you feel more comfortable and you're in a much stronger position to negotiate with providers. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So you, you, you're talking about like certain steps that people can take on how to get out of their situation uh, or mm. the debt situation. Um, can you give some examples of steps people can take? Um, uh, well, for me, I used to have a very large credit card debt and I thought, why am I paying all of this interest um, over a long period of time and, and the principal's not going down. So I cut up my credit card. I rolled that debt into a personal loan that was at a much lower rate mm -hmm. and then paid that off but also started a savings account um, and that if the money wasn't in the bank account, I couldn't buy it. 
And so I became a much more considered shopper and started that that savings account. Now, it didn't happen overnight. I didn't get out of debt quickly. It wasn't magic and it was hard. But by um, having a lower interest rate, I was able to put that money that would have been going on interest into a savings account and built a buffer. And also that didn't magically appear overnight. It took months and years to do it. And it was a long, hard slog. But now I'm much a much more considered shopper. And I've realized that I don't need a lot in my life to make me happy. I would rather spend time with friends um, then go shopping. And I've also been able to say, actually, no, I'm sorry, I, I, this restaurant is too expensive for me. Mm. Or, and, and not feel comfortable, you know, not saying it everywhere, but not feeling uncomfortable saying to my closest friends and family, look, you know, I'm not coming out tonight because I don't have enough money. Yeah. And also saying to them, it's not that I want you to loan me the money or pay for me. I'm just making a choice that I, I am prioritising not going out tonight with saving and that's what makes me feel safer. Yeah. Yeah. You actually highlighted really some good uh, good stuff. Uh, it's like, first of all, like having a plan, having a strategy. Yes. Like if, if you have uh, if you have that, it's like you said, okay, how am I going to get out of it? And how, how can I now lower that, that, that rate that I'm paying? And how can I, uh, the rate, the, the payments that I normally would make, how can I use that to actually create that buffer? And that on its own is a plan. I think a yes. lot of people are not owning it and they're just hiding away from uh, the fact like, and they feel like maybe, and this is like, I don't want to generalize it, but it's maybe they feel a little bit of like, like, like I'm not in control uh, yes. and they're shying, hiding away and they give a control to somebody else or they give the blame to somebody else instead, instead of taking that ownership and saying like, look, this is a situation I got myself into. What am I now going to do to take action to get myself out of that situation? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any other uh, recommendations that that you would make? Uh, because you gave so many already, Nikki. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, look, I think that the top three I would say is learn about your financial concepts. And there, look, there are two great resources. I mean, there are great resources out there, um, but there are two good books that I've recently come across, and. Everybody's probably heard of the Barefoot Investor books. Yep. They are great. And there is one specifically targeted at, at families. And I haven't read that one because I don't have a family. But um, friends who do, it's fantastic. But if you really... Um, so that's good to help you on your way. Um, but there's also one... Um, and I don't know whether I can swear, so I'll talk around it. It's called Unf Your Finances, and you know what the F word is. Yeah. <laughs> Brown, and it's it's aimed at um, I think people who have slightly less financial literacy and are less um, familiar with the financial concepts than the barefoot investor, and aimed at younger people. But she's got some 
you know, some really great ways of thinking about, um, you know, things about sexually transmitted debt, about about debt in general and about savings. Um, the second thing that I would do is start a saving fund if you don't have, already have one and you can afford one. Um, a good rule of thumb is to have between three and six months of expenses in that fund. And look, it will take time to, to build that up. It did take time for me, but it can give you, it, a sense of security knowing that you have that fund there um, that will give you a buffer if anything goes wrong, for example, um, a redundancy or you need to take a career break or you're having a child or you do need to leave an unsafe relationship, that there is that buffer there. Now, that, that amount of money will be different for everyone. But it does give you that sense of security that if something happens, um, you know, you're not going to be kicked out of your house. Your, your car's not going to be repossessed. And you can go on and take the break that you need to rebuild. And then the third thing that I would say, um, look, there are a couple of things. With your mortgage, pay as much as you can into it and pay it down as quickly as you can mm -hmm. and then um, maximise your superannuation contributions. So put in as much as you can over and above the, um, the employer contributions. Start early mm -hmm. and consistently um, and also maximise your tax concessions. They're a great tax concessions out there for your contributions that um and and think of it as a a long-term savings plan or a deferred savings plan um and it, this is really important for women because statistically uh women will retire with a much smaller superannuation balance than men but they will also live longer yeah so That's you need to <laughs> you need to make that money. Like when the superannuation um, system was instigated in the, the 90s by um, Paul Keating, and, and I will tell you now, I'm an unabashed fan of his for many, many reasons, including this one. Uh, the life expectancy was shorter than it is now and, uh, you know, much shorter than it is, say, for your children and millennials coming up. So you're now going to need much bigger um, superannuation balances because you are living longer and you are also being active for much longer. And if you are used to a certain level of lifestyle when you are working, suddenly if your income halves, you're not going to like the lifestyle that that, that brings. Yeah. Yeah. That's so I think that's, that's what I would, I would say. Yeah. Oh, yeah. brilliant. I made so many notes, Nikki. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> thank, thank you. And, oh. and, you know, thank you. This is, I was actually really nervous about doing this. I've never talked publicly on this topic before in this this format but it's something that I'm passionate about and it, it's something that I 
you know, people need to start thinking about it. And also I'm, I'm not boring my family anymore with it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, where can people connect with you if they want to find out more? Um, they, look, they can connect via my, my LinkedIn um, program or on all of my contact details are there. Brilliant. And I will link that up in the, in the show notes also. So to, to make thank it you. as easy as possible for people to make that connection with you. So thank you so much for no. being on the show today. And uh, yes, uh, you shared some invaluable insights and I'm sure that uh, the, anybody who's listening, the community will also find that uh, very valuable as I did. Thank you very much, Caroline. Perfect. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Bye.